0: All right, so as I mentioned, we're not going to take an offering now. We're going to take one offering at the end of our service. But I wanted to introduce um, our guest speaker today. We have Dareth Lee and his family here in the front row. He is, they are missionaries to Cambodia. Um, I was actually talking to Dareth this morning. He um, spoke at a church that Christy and I were on staff at. In the late 90s, in 1998, that's the first time I heard him speak, and it was one of those messages, every time I've heard his name mentioned over the years, I thought, oh, I remembered that message that he spoke and told his story, and uh, so you are in for a treat today, God's going to challenge you, God's going to speak to you through his sharing his testimony as well as preaching the word today, but I am thrilled that as Homestead Church, we get an opportunity to have him and his family join us today and share a little bit about what they are doing. So could we please give a warm Homestead welcome to Dareth Lee? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Good morning, folks. We're just honored and delighted to be here this morning to come and share our story and what the Lord has called us to do in the country of Cambodia. It has been said so many times that mission is the very heartbeat of God because as Scripture tells us that he desires that none shall perish. And so I'm thankful also what the Lord is doing among uh, you folks uh, uh, that... uh, the Lord has given the visions to start this church and, and see what, uh, what the Lord is doing among ourselves here as well. So, but before I uh, go any further, I would like my family to stand up, and uh, we're just, like I said, we're just uh, so good to be with you this morning. It's good to have a, a middle daughter who is going to school in Rochester, New York, and she's on spring break, and she's has been with us for uh, one week and leaving to go back tomorrow. We we're going to be sad, but uh, we'll miss you. <laughs> I like to begin by sharing uh, with you folks a two-minute video of one of our schools. It is a floating school. Uh, the Lord has enabled us to do uh, uh, ministering to the physical need of the people through uh, building and running schools. And currently, we're operating four schools that minister to over 3,000 children where we provide a place for them to to come and learn how to read and write, uh, provide nutrition, but more importantly, a place for them to come and hear the love of Jesus Christ for them and their family. Uh, And uh, through that, uh, one of our schools, it's very unique because it's a floating school. If you look on the map of Cambodia, you will see a big lake in the middle of the country And there are tens of thousands of people living on the lake, floating on bamboo shack basically because they're too poor to buy a piece of land to live on. And so many of these places are very isolated. There's no infrastructure in terms of uh, schools or medical facilities, and we're able to build one of the schools for them. And so uh, brothers, please help me. (laughs) đình ra prak ខ្ញុំលប់មកដល់ថ្មិញដល់ថ្មិញពាក់កអាវយកនំ in Helping the kids in terms of education is not enough. The goal for us is to give them Jesus Christ. We're able to teach the Bible one day a week. And a number of our kids have come to know the Lord and God is changing their, their hearts and changing their lives. Our hope is to raise up a generation of believers and train them and then send them out to tell the people about Jesus Christ so that everyone in Cambodia will have that opportunity so that they can hear the full gospel where they can be saved through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Chapter 4, and we'll be reading from verses 4 to 10, and then skip down to 30 through 35 plates, if you would. It is so good to see Becky and Paul back there. We have known them a number of years, and, and uh, thank you so much for the connections through the Homestead Church here. Thank you. The Gospel of John chapter four, verses four to 10 and 30 to 35, please, if you would. Now we had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakah, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "Will you give me a drink?" His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who has asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Skip down to verse 30, please. They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciple urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Amen. You know, folks, when I read this portion of Scripture, I'm reminded of the places that Tida and I have the the privilege to travel to in in Cambodia, all these villages across Cambodia, because for us, for the most part, uh, we do not have running water. The concept of running water to us means that one would run with a bucket of water, literally. And in in these villages, uh, we have wells that provide water for the people. But many times, in many places, there's not enough wells to provide water for everybody. And so early in the morning, especially the ladies, would get up early in the morning and wait in line for an opportunity to draw a bucket of water that would provide for the needs of their family for that particular day. And as I traveled to those places, I would go to the wells, and I would share Christ with them. And so many times I could not help it but be reminded of the scripture that we just read, what Jesus did so long ago as he was talking to the woman at the well. But this morning I would like to draw your attention to verse 4 when scripture tells us now he had to go through Samaria. When I read those words, I asked the question, why? Why did Jesus said he had to go through Samaria? Yes, he had to go from Judea and up to Samaria, look, uh, excuse me, up to Galilee in the north, and Samaria located in between those two towns. But there were other routes that Jesus could have taken. Matter of fact, there was three routes that the other Jews had taken around that Samaritan town for the facts that Jews did not associate with Samaritan. But Jesus said he had to go through Samaria. I believe it's more than a geographical destination for Jesus. I believe it was a divine appointment because Jesus knew there will be a woman waiting for him at that well, a woman that was broken, that was lost, a woman that was hopeless, and Jesus declared that he came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and set the captive free. And for that reason, he's intentionally walked to that Samaritan town in a sense he walks through that broken place the thing is as he did then he continues to do so throughout our world today there are places full of broken lives and jesus is there and when we speak of the broken places I think Cambodia ranks at the very top because Cambodia today continues to struggle in so many ways. It's one of the poorest countries in that part of the world, and it's become a center for human trafficking, whether that for labor or, or uh, sex trafficking. And also, the United Nations estimated that Cambodia still has one landmine for every person living in that country. It is per capita, it has the highest amputee of any country in the world. And the country, uh, the, the country continues to struggle in so many ways. But the suffering of the people of that small nation goes a long way back. Forty years ago, a radical communist known as the Khmer Rouge came to power in Cambodia, led by an evil man by the name of Pol Pot. When Pol Pot and his regime came to power, he wanted to turn that country into some kind of an agrarian utopia communist state. And so to accomplish his goal, he began a systematic slaughter that in the spans of four years, they murdered one third of the population. Because of that, Cambodia today is known as the killing fields. Perhaps some of you folks have heard about that fray or that name. As soon as they got in power, as soon as they got full control of the country, they emptied all the cities, all the towns. People were march out into the countryside with only the clothes on their backs, and then they abolished all institutions. There was no school, there was no market, there was no bank, there was no hospital, there was no family for that matter because people were separated from each other. Children were taken away from their parents and sent to labor camps. Husbands and wives were separated from each other and were sent to different labor camps. And then they round people up, those that had any connection with the previous government, and those that were from the city that were perceived to be educated. If one would wear glasses, the entire family would be rounded up. And they they would take the people by the tens of thousands and they have a saying that people's life is not worth a bullet, and so they would not use gun to shoot and kill, but rather came up with different methods of tortures and killings. They would take people by the thousands and force them to dig these massive graves and line them up, and they would take the back of their AK-47 and hit the back of the people's head one at a time and push them into these massive graves, and many were still alive. They would simply bury them alive. They would cut people open and rip out their children. Heart, literally, and show them to those that were waiting for their turn. They would take mothers with their babies and tie them up, the mothers, and force them to watch as they would take the baby and throw them up in the air and wait with a bayonet at the end of their AK 47. Sometimes they would grab them by the, their ankles and smash their skull against a trunk of a tree and then toss them into this massive grave. If you go to Cambodia today, I can take you to places. There are trees still standing. If you go and you look close, you can still see the flood stain because of what happened. And those people that were not being killed off right away, they forced them to work in the rice paddies from sunup through sundown and through the night without food. And so masses of people died from starvation in addition to the killings that were taking place. And because of that, in the spans of four years, one-third of the population were literally wiped out. And everybody has a story, those that survived, a story how they lost their mother, their father, their brothers, even the entire family. But the thing is, the good news is, Jesus walks in the broken places, amen, because he came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and set the captive free, and because of that, the message of hope and salvation is being proclaimed in the land of the killing fields today, and living souls are emerging. The church is being planted, and as I share the story of Cambodia, I share my own story because I was seven years old when all that happened. And I can still remember today, as they marched us out with only the clothes on our back, with tanks behind us, tens upon thousands of people were marching out into the countryside. And then they came and they took me away from my mother. And I was sent to a labor camp for children ages from about 7 all the way up to 11, 12 years old. And of course, my mother and sister and other relatives went to different labor camps. And in the labor camp that I was in, like I have said, for children, but even as children, they would force us to work in the rice paddies from sunup through sundown as they made these bamboo baskets and we would use the basket to carry the dirt on our shoulder all day long as they forced us to dig channels and build dikes across the rice paddies that would serve no real reason other than to work us to death and for food we were giving one small cup of rice water they put a handful of rice in a big pot and fill that and boil that and each child would get one small cup of that one would be uh, lucky if we can find a couple grains in this small cup of rice water and so masses of children die from starvation And I was able to stay alive by eating different kinds of leaves and barks and grass and insects that that I was able to find in the rice paddies. But in addition to the starvation and the forced labor, they would torture us. Every day around noon when it's the hottest time of the day, they would tell us to sit in the mud in the rice paddies and they would come by and randomly select a handful of children, six, seven of us at a time, and then they would bring them to the front. And those of us who were not being selected were forced to watch as they would take plastic bags and put over their head and suffocate them and kill them, as they would take pliers and pull off their fingernails and toenails. Sometimes they would decapitate kid's head with a frond from a palm tree. One day they select a boy that was working next to me and they tied his feet together and they pull his arms apart and they took a frond from a palm tree that has a sharp jagged edge like a saw, and they try to decapitate his head, and I remember the scream and the blood, and they looked at me, they said, don't turn away, because you will be next. One day while working in the rice paddies, I saw a snail bopping right next to me, and because of the starvation, and I I, I knew that they were watching me, but the hunger was so intense that I'd, i I bend down, i pick up that snail, and I knew that they would kill me, but... I was so hungry, I didn't care, and so I ate that snail, and they came, and these guards, along with the AK-47, they carry these bamboo canes that they would use the canes to beat us with, and they beat me with the canes, and then they pushed me into the mud, and then they tied my feet together and my arms behind my back, and they dragged me across that place to the, to the place that we would come to sleep for a couple of hours at night, about a half a mile away. Once we got to that place, they found a tree that was full of these red ants. And they tied me against the tree and left me there. Waited until the rest of the children came back. And once the children came back, they untied me from the tree, but my feet and arms were still bound together, and they forced the children to come up one at a time. Repeat after them, saying what I did was wrong, was against their rule, that they, the children, they would not follow my example. And after they finished saying that, They forced the children to beat me, to kick me, and to stump on me. And and then they picked me up, and the next child would come and repeat the process. I was unconscious in in the midst of that. I don't know how long I was unconscious, but when I came out of it, I just realized that I was being... you know, pain all over me and and, and so thirsty. So I crawled to the edge of that high ground to the rice paddies to get some water, and they realized that I was still alive, so they came back and they beat me some more, and they said, next time we will finish you off. But what they didn't know was there is a God who walks in the broken places. And there in the midst of that horrible place, in the middle of that rice paddy, he had his hand on my life. In that labor camp, to begin with, we had over 2,000 children. Four years later, less than 50 were still alive. The rest either died from the starvations or the killings. At that point, we were so emaciated, we couldn't walk, much less work. But they dragged us and left us to die in the rice paddies. One day, bombs went off, guns went off. We didn't know what was happening. What had happened was the Vietnamese were fighting against with the Khmer Rouge because they were invading Cambodia. And so those of us that had enough strength to be found a hole in the ground to hide, and so we crawl in there, and after a couple of hours when the shooting had stopped, we crawl out and looked around and noticed that the guards, they were no longer there. They ran away. And so we thought perhaps we can find other people. And so we walked from where we were, more like crawl, from where we were headed toward a village. And once we got to that village, we found other people that survived. And they were coming out from the different labor camps and all of us were walking skeletons. And so many times we couldn't walk very far. We would sit on the side of a road. And so I was sitting on a side of a dirt road, waiting for something to happen, waiting for somebody to come and help. As I was sitting there, a woman walked by it, and as she walked past me, she stopped and she turned around and she came back and asked what my name is. And after I had told her, she said she's my sister. And then she shared with me that they kill all her children. She she had three children. They forced her to watch as they torture and kill her children. And later she found out that they kill her husband at a different labor camp. So she was glad that a family member had survived. And so I stayed with her and as we're all trying to find food and trying to find uh, uh, family members, somebody within our group that perhaps we can escape. And so one night we made the journey walking from where we were headed towards the borders between Cambodia and Thailand. It's about 200 miles away. But the thing was, we had to walk across a jungle that was, and it still is, infested with landmines. And so the people would walk in front of me, and I could still see it today if I closed my eyes. As they walk in front of me, they would step on these landmines and would blow up, and, and I would hide. And when the screaming had died, and when the smoke somewhat died down, and I came out, and then sure enough, there were people got their limbs blown off. And and these, what they call anti-personnel landmines, they were intent to maim, but not to kill and so many times they were still alive with, with just bleeding all over and they were pleading for us to help and we couldn't help and I couldn't even walk around them because of all the landmines. I remember stepping on them as they crying for help. Push on. Eventually, those of us that were still standing made it to Thailand. Out of that group of about 100 or so people, less than 25 people were still standing by the time we got to, to Thailand. At that point, the world had heard what happened, the genocide that took place in Cambodia. And so they started to ask different countries to take in refugees. And through that, I was able to come to Minnesota at the age of 11 years old as an orphan refugee. But as the Lord would have it, they put me in a foster home. And my foster mother attended an A.G. church in St. Paul. And through that, I came to know the Lord at the age of 14 years old. And God came in, and he just miraculously touched and healed me. The memories are still there, but the nightmares are gone because he walks in the broken places of this world. And I share my story with you folks for one reason only, that is to give God the glory, because he... Touch and he healed me. Yes, like I've said, the memories are still there, but the nightmares, the waking up in the middle of the night in, in, in horror because of what happened, all that disappeared because he came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and set the captive free. Yes. You know, folks, in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, the disciples, Scripture tells us, have gone to town to fight food. When they returned, Jesus was talking to the woman and the people that were coming. And out of their concern for his well-being, they said, Rabbi, eat something. Jesus responded. He said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Then he went on and said, Don't you have a saying, four months more until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. Folks, the disciples, they were not walking around with their eyes closed. But they missed what Jesus was seeing. What Jesus was seeing was the brokenness, the pain, the suffering, the hopelessness in the hearts of those that were before him. He was thirsty. He was hungry. But none of those physical needs of him could delay him from ministering to the people that were before him. And he said to the disciples, open your eyes. As he said to them then, I believe he's saying to us today, open our eyes. The Lord had just miraculously and automatically opened my eyes to the needs of those that were without him. Because in nineteen ninety. One, the country of Cambodia opened its door to the outside world for the first time. And the, the Assembly have God, as a fellowship, they wanted to put missionaries in the ground right away. And so they transferred two missionary families from the Philippines to Cambodia. And one of the missionary families are from Minnesota. They're from my home church. And uh, because of the relationships that we have... When they got to Cambodia, they were overwhelmed with the need of that country, and they, they didn't speak the language and, and, nor know the culture, and so they wrote a letter asking if I was willing to return to Cambodia to help them for a short time. And folks, I wanted nothing to do with that country. I'm thankful that God had touched and healed me, but I wanted nothing to do with Cambodia, and I said no way that I would do that. But the letters kept coming. And in between, the Holy Spirit worked it in my heart, and I reasoned within my mind. I said, perhaps I can go back to Cambodia and bring a closure to that part of my life, and I can come back home to Minnesota. And so I agreed to return, thinking that I was just going to spend two weeks in Cambodia and then come back. Once I set foot in that country once again, the memory surfaced the memories that i try so hard for so long to forget once again surface in my conscious mind and I didn't want to be there. I wanted to get on the, on the plane and, and return, but they wouldn't let me do that. And as I stayed, more and more memories surfaced. And I thought about my mother, the mother whom I was separated by the Khmer Rouge at the age of seven years old. I didn't know whether she was dead or alive, but I thought perhaps she was alive. And so I asked this missionary friend to help me find my mother, and we began the search. And a little bit over two weeks later, we found her. When I went to meet my mother for the first time, what I saw was a frail, sick, broken woman. She was so skinny, so, so sick, she could hardly walk. After the, the shock of the moment, when we get down to talk, she started to share with me about her own suffering. How so many times she was tortured by the Khmer Rouge, and, and she showed me the scars in her body, and I was just overwhelmed, and, and how she didn't have enough food to eat from day to day, even at that moment when I was talking to her. The following day, as I forced myself to stay with her, my mother excused herself and she went and cooked a little bit of rice that she had saved up. As I've said, she didn't have enough rice to eat from day to day, but on that day, she saved a a handful of rice and she went and cooked that. And when she finished cooking that rice, I saw a group of Buddhist monks walk up by her place And then they turned around and they came back in their orange robes and they were standing in front of her place there. And my mother put the rice in a little bowl and she walked out there to meet the Buddhist monks. When she got to them, she put the rice on the ground and then she slowly bent down and she got on her knees and then she bowed before them, her face into the ground three times, and then got up and offered the rice to them. And in return, they said a quick chanting over her. And then they move on. And that they believe that, chant, that chanting would turn into karma, good deeds. My mother walked back to me and she put the rice bowl down next to me on that bamboo bed I was sitting on. And I looked at her and I asked the question. I said, Mother, why didn't you just eat the rice? Why did you have to give to the Buddhist monks? At that point, she started to cry. With tears running down her face, she looked at me. She said, Son, I have known so much suffering in my life. I have no hope. I have no hope of living anymore, she said. She said, My only hope right now is that I would give enough rice to the Buddhist monks or when I die soon, I will not come back. And live the same life I'm living today. I would not reincarnate again and come and live the same life I'm living today. And, folks, for the first time as a believer, I understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, Open your eyes. It was more than an intellectual understanding, it was a heart understanding. I understand why Jesus did not stop to rest nor eat. And it was overwhelming. And I did the only thing I I knew how to. I cried out to God in my prayer. I said, Holy God, please do something. My God, I don't know how I don't know what, but please do something to help my mother. And then the realizations that the entire country of Cambodia, every person was in that same condition as my mother, and so I plead with the Lord. I said, God, help me. Lord, do something. Lord, do something. And the Holy Spirit responded. He said, Jesus did it all on the cross. He came to preach good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted and set the captive free. Because of that, I can do something. I can give my mother and the people of Cambodia the message of hope and salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, I didn't want to hear that. So I left Cambodia three weeks later and tried to forget. But the image of my mother and the words of the Holy Spirit would not go away. And so in 1996, my wife and I and our first daughter, we returned to Cambodia as missionaries. And through that, we're planting churches, training pastors and church leaders, and ministering to the physical need of the people through schools, and through that like i've said god is raising up living souls out of the killing fields of cambodia because he walks in the broken places of this world when we first went to cambodia we were asked by our leadership to run an orphanage it was one of the most difficult tasks that i had to do because At our orphanage, we had limited capacity in terms of space and resources to care for the children, but yet every day the people would come and they'd bring these babies to us and they wanted us to take them into our orphanage and we couldn't because we were beyond our capacity, like I've said, and I would have to send them away knowing that many of those children would die. Their chances for survival was with us and we couldn't help them all. And so in a sense, I was asked to decide which child gets to live and which child gets to die. One of those mornings I showed up, there was a woman waiting for me at the gate. And before she could say anything, I just cut it off. I said, please, please. She had a, a bundle of dirty blankets and then she placed that at my feet And I refused to look down and I said, please, we cannot take another child in. And this woman did something that I was not prepared for. She got on her knees and she bowed before me. And with both free arms, she wrapped her arms around my leg and she wouldn't let me walk away. So I was forced to look down and I looked into a face of a little baby boy, about two weeks or so. He was so emaciated that his eyes literally had sunk in, and he couldn't even open his mouth to cry. The woman looked up at me, and she explained that she's not the mother, that the mother had died in the process of giving birth to to the child, to the baby, and that there was no other relatives, adult relatives around where they can care for the baby, and so she was forced to care for him. And she said she didn't have enough resources to buy milk for him, and he was just barely clinging on to life. In the face of that, we did the only thing we could. Of course, we took him in, and we cared for him. And I, I pray, and I plead with the Lord to help him to make it. But sometimes God has other plan, and it was such for that little baby, and he passed away. And I was just crushed. And it seems that all the hardship and all the struggles that we were facing uh, came to symbolize in that one baby, and, and he didn't make it, and so I was still discouraged. But it was upon me to find a place to to bury him. And in Cambodia, folks, it's hard to do because it's a Buddhist country. And in that Buddhist country and culture, when when somebody dies, the family members would take the body to the Buddhist temple and they would have a Buddhist ceremony and they cremate the body at the temple. And we try to do that, to cremate the, the body at the temple. They wouldn't let us do that because we're believers. And so I was stuck And so I went to the government officials, and I plead with them to please give us a piece of land where we can bury this old baby. And at first they said no, but after reason with them, they finally understand. And so they gave us a piece of land on top of a hill, overlooked the entire town. And so I sent the older boys up there, and after they had dug a hole, we all went up there, and we laid the baby down, stood around that gravesite. And after the staff had let the children to some singing... They turned to me and I pick up my Bible to read. But as soon as I had opened my mouth to read a loud demonic Buddhist chanting sound came on. And the sound was so loud that it just drowned me out. It seems that the sky had opened up and this chanting was poured upon us and it was so loud that I couldn't even hear myself read as I've said. What had happened was next to us there was a Buddhist temple and they put a big megaphone on top of a tree and they broadcast this chanting for all to hear and we were standing right next to it. And I didn't know what to do as the staff and the children looked at me. I didn't know what to do and in my heart I was just crying. I said, God, God, this is so hard. I can't do this. I want to go back to Minnesota. And there at that instant... I made up my mind. And I said, when this day ends, and I don't know how it's going to end, but when it ends, we will pack up when we will go back home. But as soon as I said that, the Holy Spirit touched my heart to, to look down to the temple, to where that sound was coming from. And so I looked up, and what I saw instead was the people. There were several hundred people. And they were marching in rows and they were bringing food and whatever they had to to the temple to the Buddhist monks. And there in the midst of that demonic chanting, once again, the Holy Spirit reminded me of John chapter 4. He said, open your eyes. While I was standing up there, buried that little baby whom Jesus loved and died for. The enemy buries hundreds of people. They were marching to an eternal grave without the slightest Knowledge of who Jesus is and I said I want to go home it was such a conviction I didn't know what to do and so I just put my head down and and tears starting run down my face and there was a little girl standing next to me and she tucked on my arm a couple times before I can gather myself and look at her and when I looked down and she looked up and she said Papa, Papa please don't cry we will see him in heaven But her words echo loud, louder than the sound of the Buddhist chanting. And the Holy Spirit said, yes, don't cry. You will indeed see him. But those people as well, if you're faithful to do the things I've called you to do in the capacity that I allowed you to do, because Jesus came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and set the captive free. And folks... That's what it's all about. That's what mission is. Sometimes we are overwhelmed with the needs around us, even in our own lives. And it seems that the enemy is mocking everything good and, and, and godly. And it's so easy to put our head down and say, I want to give up. But he's saying to us today, don't give up because he came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and set the captive free. All he had asked of us is our obedience, and he will do the rest. Because what the enemy intended for evil, God will turn that for good to accomplish his purpose. Would you bow your hearts with me? Holy God, I thank you. I thank you that you walk in the broken places of this world. Even the places of our heart. And Lord, this morning I ask in the name of Jesus Christ that those of us that are sitting here this morning who are broken because the enemy intended for evil, Lord, I pray that you would turn that for good to accomplish your purpose. And as Joseph said it, the saving of many lives. Lord, heal your people, restore your people, and open our eyes so that we can proclaim the name that is above all names. And through that name, there's hope to the hopeless. There's healings to those that are hurt and there's salvation to the lost. We thank you. Amen. Amen.